Good afternoon. Welcome to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm here to entertain, inform, and inspire, if I can be so so modest. But I've got a lot of interesting things to talk about today. Some are very timely. Some are always good. I do want to just talk about a little bit of the whole economic thing. If you notice today, there was another big bounce in the stock market this morning. And they were blaming it on Trump tweeting about how he's going to be meeting with the Chinese president to work out the trade talks. One thing I sort of suspect, I sort of suspect that by the time he says that something like that's going to happen, they've already done the agreement in the background and it's already ready to go. That seems to be the way it worked with that whole North Korean thing when he first became president and everybody thought it was going to be a big war and all that. And it's almost like they had already worked out the agreements in the back room before they even announced anything together. That's just my feeling. One of the things going on mostly with this whole Trump economy thing, of course, the tax, new tax law was a big deal. I've talked quite a bit about that. It mostly affects everyone. Some people didn't get a lot of big changes. Some got tax savings. A few people got tax increases. But generally, it's been lower taxes across the board. The other big thing that's in the news all the time is complaining about his tariffs. I listen to a lot of commentary. I'm not a economic expert on all this world economy stuff, but I do have my own opinions after hearing some other people explaining and laying out some things about how the reaction to these tariffs seems to be worse than the tariffs themselves. Another example of the tariff thing was he threatened tariffs against Mexico, but by the time they were supposed to start, which was going to be June 10th, they had had enough negotiations to where he feels like he didn't have to. Whether we'll ever know all these details of all these backroom agreements until they're formalized, I'm not sure. My point is that in general, the general news that you hear about the tariffs in general is bad. It's restraining trade. It's going to cause inflation. It's bad. And I actually just today, I was before I... Got, I was getting ready to do the show today, and I was looking on the, I was googling things, and when I googled tariffs, I would say ninety five percent of all the headlines I got in the first couple pages of search results were negative, scare mongering, mainstream news threats about how bad these tariffs are. My main feeling is that tariffs are going against the globalization free trade things that have been going for about almost 50 years now. The entire disintegration with the United States rust belt, the factories that are empty, you've heard of that expression, the rust belt. Just look up Detroit ruins or Pennsylvania steel ruins and you'll see some really interesting photographs of all these abandoned factories. Detroit especially, it's just like a graveyard of really big old buildings that are they're just they're just shells. I think it's really interesting. When the globalization occurred, no president before Trump has ever stood up against it. Every single president since at least, now Nixon had the opening China with Kissinger, so he probably was the main start. Johnson, I would say Kennedy, I don't think he was involved in a lot of globalization treaties. Johnson, the interesting thing I heard about Johnson's family, and I'm not, don't quote me because I haven't really done the research, but this wouldn't surprise me at all. 
as soon as President Kennedy died, the Vietnam War completely escalated. I had heard that Lady Bird Johnson's family, and I never saw that movie Lady Bird. I don't know if it talked about anything like this. I had heard that Lady Bird Johnson's family had the rights to the oil royalties for the Pacific fleet of our military, which would obviously have ramped up a lot of profits for that family if the Vietnam War cranked up. I had heard that. Don't quote me on it. But I wouldn't be surprised. Nixon had the China with Kissinger, and that was a big deal because before that, it's like China was kind of like we've been with Cuba. You can't talk to them. You can't go there. It was off limits to business, the whole bit. Kissinger, as a representative of the bankers of the world, I'll just say, I won't mention any famous family names. I will be mentioning one a little later in my in some reading I'm going to do for you. Kissinger, as an agent and as Secretary of State, but also as a banker's agent, began the opening up of the China-U.S. relations, which in reality is just business transactions. After Nixon, we had Carter, we had Reagan, then we had Bush Sr., then we had Clinton, then we had Bush Jr., then we had Obama. I do know that the major thing I remember about Clinton's era was the NAFTA agreement, which Trump is not, I don't think he was able to actually cancel the NAFTA agreement, but he is renegotiating things. I haven't kept up on the details, but that was sort of the beginning of the end as far as American strength. And when the NAFTA was passed, that was a big deal. So one thing about NAFTA that I do remember was in it was given the authority for the U.S. government to backstop or bail out any U.S. companies that invested in Mexico and somehow lost if they invested in Mexico and lost their factory through the state taking it over down there or something like that, I believe the U.S. taxpayers are on the hook for that. It hasn't happened that I know of, but if it does, I believe that that is sort of where we're at. So NAFTA was kind of bad. There was one called CAFTA, which was the Central American Free Trade Agreement, I've read a few things about that. I'm not a real expert, but I do know that there's a lot of exemptions around the law where builders and things can bring crews from Central America and not pay the appropriate full taxes and workers' comp and all that. So it's sort of a, it it probably hurts the American labor somewhat. I don't want to belabor all this, but my main point is that for the last 50 years, we have been on a worldwide goal of taking the jobs to where the inexpensive labor is and shutting down the jobs in the places like here where it's just, it's been a goal. And I'll just say it's a goal of what I call the globalists. One of the first things that happened when Trump became president was he stopped what's called the TPP. It was another agreement that would have really, from what I've read, that agreement would not have been good for us as far as businesses kind of taking over the court system. That's sort of what I remember of that TPP, and it didn't go through. But my whole point in this is that These tariffs are related to the U.S. getting back to what they call bilateral trade agreements. In other words, we as a country would make an agreement with China just between us and China. Then we would make an agreement between us and the United Kingdom. 
And then the United Kingdom could make their own bilateral agreement between them and China. In other words, you're not dealing with a world body like the World Trade Organization dictating rules of how you are going to trade. You go on your own and you do your own trade agreements as you see fit as a country. The problem is every time something comes up for us as a country, that gets labeled as being unfair or it gets labeled as being discriminatory toward other countries. That seems to be the basic reason why whenever you hear about the tariffs that Trump is initiating, it's always made out to be a terrible idea. It's just a horrible idea. And the reason is, is that the globalist types make money on free trade between all these countries and the cheap labor in the right places and the exploitation of the labor. Have you guys ever read stories about the notes people find in the boxes that arrive at Walmart and it's a note from a worker in China and it's real depressing what the notes say. If you ever look that up, I don't, I don't know where you would find it, but if you ever look that up, it's very weird. And a lot of people have found these notes that are left by Chinese workers and they find them in the boxes and that's kind of sad. In the interest of business buzz, keeping you as, as informed as I possibly can, I put together a little list. To be honest, I didn't print it and I didn't bring it with me, but I'll remember it from heart. It's a list of places that you can go to really learn a lot more about these things. I can't go into that much detail in the 45, 50 minutes I have every Tuesday here with you. But you can go on and read more and listen more and learn about the things I'm saying so that you can decide whether I'm right or not. I'm not saying to believe me. I'm saying you should decide whether you agree with me by reading and learning and checking all the other sides. Now, you'll automatically hear one side of everything just by turning on your television and listening to the basic networks and the CNBC business and Bloomberg. You can hear that side 24 hours a day very easily. But the side I want you to read is not that easy. You have to actually go looking for it. One, uh, A couple of, of the websites I recommend if you want to learn more, there's a man named Dave Janda, J-A-N-D-A, and he's at davejanda.com, and he has a lot of interesting, interesting articles and discussions and interviews. He's really intelligent. And I believe his dad was like a developer in Chicago. So his dad was a kind of a big businessman. And he actually, I believe he worked for the Reagan administration in the, not the FDA, but the, where the surgeon general works. I think it was like the health and human services. So he is an actual Washington, former Washington insider. And he has a lot of interesting information, a lot of interesting economic articles. I would definitely recommend that you look into reading uh, DaveJanda.com and look at that site. Another site with good articles is called SGTReport.com. Sam Giraffe Tom Report.com. He's got a lot of good stuff. He also has a YouTube channel, but he's got a website too. And his name's Sean, and I get a lot of good, good information from him. The other one, if you want a good daily briefing of the latest things that are going on, especially with Trump and QAnon, like I've mentioned before, it's called X-22 Report. I find it on YouTube. He probably has a website also. And every day he gives like about a 20-minute summary of the latest news of what's happening. And that's a good place to watch also, X-22 Report. So I just wanted to touch on those. As far as this whole international trade, we're going to come up on the first break real soon. What's very interesting is if you can wrap your mind around it, the French 
and the Swedish 10-year bonds, the yields have turned negative. And I believe it's for the first time for the French. And I know the Swedish one also just turned negative. If you can figure out a way to wrap your head around the idea of negative interest, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit after the break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be right back. Advanced Soil and Garden Supply in Oroville reminds everyone that while driving, safety is extremely important. Using a cell phone, texting, or drinking and driving causes accidents and possible death. Safe driving is everyone's responsibility. This important reminder was brought to you by Advanced Soil and Garden Supply at 350 Oro Dam Boulevard in Oroville. Serving the area with quality and integrity for nearly 10 years. So go with a name you can trust and call Advanced Soil and Garden Supply. 530-533-2747. With all the outdoor fun in the North State, sometimes it's hard to always protect your skin from those damaging rays. Do you have questions about those new spots in your skin? Then maybe it's time for a skin check with Dr. Paul Sabin, a board-certified dermatologist specializing in medical and surgical skin care. Call today to schedule your appointment at 342-3424. That's 342-3424. Or visit his website, northvalleydermatology.com. Hi, this is Rob Walter, host of Red Sky Radio with Rob Walter. This is a program that proclaims liberty to the captives of our beloved nation, where truth trumps political correctness and where the uncompromised word of God exposes the works of darkness and sets free those held hostage behind the iron curtain of a shamelessly biased media. America, we have a trail to blaze. It's time to saddle up. It's time to ride. Join me at 7 a.m. on KKXX. Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. here on KKXX. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm glad you have a chance to spend part of your busy day with me. I was talking about the concept of negative interest rates. I don't have the statistics right now, but there are trillions of dollars of debt in the world, especially in Europe, that are actually yielding a negative rate of interest. That means that if you desire to own, say, a German 10-year bond, the normal situation is you would buy a bond like a U.S. 10-year bond, and it would pay you, I think right now it's around 2 a little over 2% interest for 10 years. Then after 10 years, you get, your, you get your money back that you invested in the bond. That makes logical sense. 2% is way too low to risk your money for the next 10 years. But if you choose to do that or if your broker chooses to do that with your money, uh, that's, that's up to you. What if the U.S. interest rates go negative? What does that mean? If you buy a German bond, and I'll just say it's negative 0.3%, I'm not sure exactly what it is. It fluctuates every day. That means that if you put $1,000 in that bond, 1% would be $10. So after one year, instead of growing you would have $997. In other words, you would have had to pay $3 just to hold that bond. Does that make any sense at all? There are even situations that may not be the case now, but it was about three or four years ago, the Netherlands. The interest rates were so negative that they even had what's called negative mortgages. And you would actually have your principal go down without making any payments. It's, it doesn't make any sense. And so I just wanted to point out the fact that there are 
lots of reasons to be wary of the basic money situation. Now, this all ties back around to everything else. If you were, and I've talked about this before, if you were the financial director at CalPERS with $50 billion to invest and you need to make about a 6 or 7% return to keep all the teachers' pensions afloat, how would you enjoy looking at bonds like the European bonds with negative interest rates? Would that help you towards your goal of earning 6 or 7% safely for the money that's under your direction? I don't think that would help much in your overall quest for 6 or 7% of safe return. That's why the stock market is the really the only game in town for some of these investment places to go because they have to hope that they can somehow get some sort of real return on the money because even a U.S. Treasury bond only gets you 2% now, a 10-year. It's just an interesting world that we're living in, and it uh, doesn't always make sense. There was another famous name in the news. It was a couple days ago. I don't know if you noticed because this person is not a Californian. It's a New York type person. And the name of this person is Gloria Vanderbilt. I believe she was 95 years old, but I, I think she passed away on the 17th. Her... Famous son is Anderson Cooper. I did see a headline that said something like why Anderson Cooper's not inheriting anything. But from what I've learned and seen about the uber-wealthy, super-multi-billionaire families like Vanderbilt's, they always have everything going to these charitable foundations so there's no estate tax. If you were to win a $20 million lottery and then the next day die in a car crash, your estate, since you hadn't had time to plan it out, could owe something to the tune of, and I'll just throw this out, 4 or $5 million to the federal government in estate tax for you dying and owning $20 million. I doubt if the people like the Vanderbilts and the Bill Gates and the Buffets, I doubt if they ever pay a dime of, of any tax or definitely not of the death inheritance tax. They have so many charitable foundations and whatever you leave to a licensed charity like a charitable foundation is free from that inheritance tax. I don't know all the ins and outs of exactly what they do, but... I guarantee they are not paying any death taxes. I mean, I can, I can pretty much tell you I believe they are not. Don't quote me. Don't quote me on anything. You've got to do your own research. I am not a researcher. I don't claim to be verified by anybody. Nobody verifies my research or the things that I say, so it's up to you if you want to learn more to learn yourself and check Check on these facts. Check and see if I'm check and see if I'm right when I give you some of this these interesting numbers. So to honor the Vanderbilt family, I went to one of my favorite sources of information. It's a book copywritten in hang on, I gotta find it. It's actually a paper book. 1907, the author is named Gustavus Myers, M-Y-E-R-S. It was distributed in Canada, at least the one I've got. And the name of the book is History of the Great American Fortunes. And trust me, it's a treasure trove of information. Now, it's a pretty long book, and it you know, it, it's pretty detailed because obviously when you're totally exposing famous hallowed names of American business history that are worshipped on the altar of wonderful geniuses, 
you'd better have good backup and footnotes when you call their bluff, basically. That's what this person does. I think it's pretty cool that he wrote this over 110 years ago, and it's still never made, it's still never been on the the nightly news. So I'm just going to read part of this chapter called The Vanderbilt Fortune Increases Manifold. Uh, I was reading some of this this morning to get kind of ready. It started where during the Civil War he was able to bilk the government out of tons of money by putting together dangerous, rotting timber ships that the military could lease from him and risk lives of sailors. And one part of this book talked about how it was a general rule that you always had two navigators on every boat, but these a lot of times only had one. The boats themselves were designed for something like 300. One of them they mentioned it was for 300 passengers, but Vanderbilt's company would put 950 soldiers on it. So you can imagine the the conditions and the things these guys had to go through to try to serve their country. So I'm just going to pick it up a little bit after the boat story, and then it got into the railroad story, and I believe his main fortune was the railroads, and I'm just going to read part of this. It's in the History of the Great American Fortunes, the Vanderbilt Fortune Increases Manifold, and this is page 318 of my, of my edition. And it says, uh, Vanderbilt now had a complete railroad system from New York to Chicago with extensive offshoots. It is at this point that we have to deal with a singular commendation of his methods thrust forward glibly from that day to this. True, his eulogists admitted then, as they admit now, Vanderbilt was not over-scrupulous in getting property that he wanted. But consider, they urge, the improvements he brought about on the railroads that came into his possession. The renovation of the roadbed, the institution of new locomotives and cars, the tearing down of the old worn-out stations. This has been the praise showered upon him and his methods. Inquiry, however, reveals that this appealing picture, like all others of its sort, has been ingeniously distorted. Yeah, I'm going to get back to the true history of the Vanderbilt fortune in a few minutes. Come right back to Business Buzz. I'll be right back. Hello, this is Samantha Landy, and I bring you Psalms of Hope. Heard here on Life Radio every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon. So do tune in and join me for beautiful music and an encouraging word from the Lord. Psalms of Hope with Samantha Landy, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon, here on KKXX. Sometimes insurance can be a confusing business. I can't stress enough the importance of having a single professional insurance agent to help make sense of all your personal and business insurance policies. You don't want to get caught without the right coverage. For all your insurance needs, trust Brad Jacobson, your local farmer's insurance agent. Call 891-7900 for a free consultation and a policy review. 891-7900 for Brad Jacobson, your local farmer's insurance agent. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. I couldn't speak or walk. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhpp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Adopt US Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. You've messed up your daughter's haircut. Do you A, get spiritual? Mom, where's the mirror? Beauty is within. Oh. B, find the positives. Less time blow drying, more time texting. Or C, show empathy. Mom, you really don't have twinsies. I kind of love it. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on adoption, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council.
Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. We were taking a moment to honor the memory of Gloria Vanderbilt, and I was talking about Commodore Vanderbilt, the guy who started the Vanderbilt fortune, and I'm just going to continue reading. This is very entertaining stuff. The fact was in the first place that these improvements were not made out of regard to public convenience, but for two radically different reasons. The first consideration was that if the dividends were to be paid on the huge amount of fabricated stock, the road of necessity had to be put into a condition of fair efficiency to meet or surpass the competing facilities of other railroads running to Chicago. Second, the number of damage claims for accident or loss of life arising largely from improper appliances and insufficient safeguards was so great that it was held cheaper in the long run to spend millions for improvements. The next section is titled Public Funds for Private Use. Instead of paying for these improvements with even a few millions of the proceeds of his watered stock, Vanderbilt and all other railroad magnets in like cases did the same, forced the public treasury to defray a large part of the cost. A good illustration of his methods was his improvement of the passenger terminus in New York City. The entrance of the New York Central and the Harlem Railroads is by way of Park, formerly 4th Avenue. This franchise, as we have seen, was obtained by bribery in 1832, but it was a qualified franchise. It reserved certain nominal restrictions in behalf of the people by inserting the right of the city to order the removal of the tracks at any time that they became an obstruction. These terms were objectionable to Vanderbilt. A perpetual franchise could be capitalized for far more than a limited or qualified one. A perpetual franchise was what he wanted. The opportunity came in 1872. From the building of the railroad, the tracks had been on the surface of 4th Avenue. Dozens of dangerous crossings had resulted in much injury to life and many deaths. The public demand that the tracks be depressed below the level of the street had been resisted. Instead of longer ignoring this demand, Vanderbilt now planned to make use of it. He saw how he could utilize it not only to foist a great part of the expense upon the city, but to get a perpetual franchise. Thus, upon the strength of the popular cry for reform, he would extort advantages calculated to save him millions and at the same time extend his privileges. It was but another illustration of the principle in capitalist society to which we have referred before, and which there will be copious occasion to mention again and again, that after energetically contesting even those petty reforms for which the people have contended, the ruling classes have ever deftly turned about when they could no longer withstand the popular demands and have made those very reforms the basis for more spoliation and for a further entrenchment of their power. The first step was to get the New York Common Council to pass with an assumption of indignation an ordinance requiring Vanderbilt to make the desired improvements and committing the city to bear one half the expense and giving him a perpetual franchise. This was in Tweed's time when the Common Council was composed largely of the most corrupt ward healers and when Tweed's puppet Hall was mayor. Public opposition to this grab was so great as to frighten the politicians. At any rate, whatever the reasons, Mayor Hall vetoed the ordinance. However, from the Tweed-controlled legislature, Vanderbilt, in 1869, obtained the first requisite legislation. Chapter 919 of the laws of that year authorized the practical seizure of both city and private property on 42nd Street and northward to 45th Street to enable the New York and Harlem Railroad Company to construct a new passenger station. New York City was ordered to close portions of 4th Avenue and of 43rd and 44th Streets and turned the entire area over to the company for its exclusive use. There was a provision in the act for compensation, but whether any was ever paid to the city, or if so what the amount was, cannot be ascertained from any public records at least. The controller's records and many other reports covering those years have long been missing. The act of 1869 also compelled the city at public expense to create for the benefit of the company a street on the west side of the station and additionally authorized the company to lay down curves switches, and turnouts contiguous to the station. The operation of the tracks on the surface of 4th Avenue had so depreciated the value of real estate along that thoroughfare that it could be bought for trifling sums. Just before Vanderbilt caused another act of sweeping powers to be enacted in 1872, the New York Central Railroad Company bought much real estate property on both sides of 4th Avenue. 
So anyway, this is it's just a fascinating book. I ref, I recommend that you get yourself a copy. I think I've bought I think I probably bought mine on eBay, which is my favorite place to look up uh, used books. But basically this book, I mean it's 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 awesome. I've I'm going to flip over to the index real quick. And I've read this a long time ago. It's um it's been a while since I've read every last one of these, but they're very, very entertaining and educational. Um, one of the one of the big ones that it talks about at the start is um, Aster, and the Aster family was mainly in the fur business, and when you read about how they basically took over all the Indian lands and it wasn't it wasn't a pretty pretty thing the way they made their fortunes and so i know there's a town in oregon called astoria and that that's named after aster but this book is great it's got aster it's got vanderbilt it's got a chapter about the stan leland stanford and the the big four from from california uh stanford i can't even remember the four right now crocker um, you know, all those those big shots that you see, the museums and the libraries in Sacramento. Oh, another interesting thing about Stanford that I just found out over the weekend, the that new Clairvaux winery in Vina, which is run by, I'm not sure of the name of the, it's a monastery with monks who live there, and they actually make, they grow grapes, they make wine from their own grapes and from some that they bring in from Napa. The interesting thing was these real nice big brick buildings used to be owned by Leland Stanford in the 1870s, and he didn't make wine there, but he made brandy. Brandy is like distilled wine. Uh, You know, wine is fermented fruit or fermented grapes, but brandy takes it a step further, and it's like a distilled version of wine. And so Leland Stanford actually owned that whole thing up there in Vina, I'm not mistaken, it was sold to this religious organization something like 1940-something or 1950. I, I, don't, I didn't catch all of the history. But that's pretty interesting that uh, Stanford himself was here. Of course, John Bidwell was a U.S. senator, so that was, that's, a, that's about as high up as you can go as far as a national, a national office. Representatives, there's so many because remember, representatives in the House of Representatives are represented by population. So California, due to it probably having about 12% of the population of the U.S., they have 12% of the legislature in the House of Representatives. The Senate is represented by two senators from each state. So the Senate is more of the state's part of the House, a part of the Congress, and each state has equal bearing. It's interesting. California has something like 40 million people. Wyoming, I looked this up, has it's some figure under, at least this was the last census I read, maybe it was 2010. Wyoming has less than 600,000 inhabitants. So there's less than a million people in one state that gets two senators. So there's a senator for every 300,000 people in Wyoming, but there's a senator for every 20 million people in California. That's kind of weird, but that's how things balance out. So uh, with John Bidwell having been a senator, that's a very high office. And back then, uh, I believe at his time, there probably would have been something like 40 states or so. So there wouldn't have even been 50 states and there wouldn't have even been 100 senators. There might have only been about 80 senators. So that was a very powerful position. And he was right here in, of course, right here in Chico. Does everybody enjoy the hot Chico summers? I like them, but I, it's just, it just gets to be so overwhelming if you're outside. I played tennis this morning, and even though the game started at 8 a.m., 
it was very hot. And it, when once you get exhausted and drained in the first couple hours of the day, it sort of makes you tired the rest of the day. But I don't know. It's one of the, I kind of think of it as a trade-off, the, the benefits of living here in Butte County with all the good things about it can sort of get a little bit tempered by the fact that we have to go through this summer that so far is very hot and it's not even officially summer yet. And these triple-digit days are just, to me, it's, I don't mind them, but I don't, I don't love it. And I worry that if you had elderly people without enough air conditioning, I mean, you could actually have some problems with uh, heat strokes and all that because it's, it's just too hot. And, of course, with the PG&E rates as they are these days, that can get very expensive. So it's it's just an interesting place. But I know when I was a kid, if anybody mentioned Chico, they would say, oh, that place is so hot. And they'd tell a story about how they had to drive up there and they didn't have air conditioning and it was 115. And it's a that's sort of like a trademark of the North Valley, the heat. The other thing is Redding and Red Bluff get hotter than Chico quite often. And they're even further north. And it's sort of amazing if you look, if you were to go across that latitude, like looking across the U.S. or even around the world like Spain and Italy, I'm not sure there's anywhere as, at, as north of a latitude as Redding, California, that can get those 120-degree days. I, I would have to look that up. But it just seems to me that that would not be it shouldn't happen at that latitude. And I know it has to do with the the shape of the valley and the fact that the bowl of the valley ends there and probably traps all the hot air, but very interesting. Well, we're coming up on the fourth segment. I'll be right back with some inspiration to keep you going through the rest of this Chico summer day. I'll be right back after the break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. Filtering everything through God's Word. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's Word. We often want to shelter our children from the evils of the world. And of course, there's a place for that. But the sexual and gender revolutionaries are determined to capture our children. You know, at some point, your kids will have to take a stand. Now, do they have the teaching they need to choose biblically? Part of discipling our children is making them aware of what the world teaches and then comparing it to Scripture. You see, we want to train them while they're young to test everything against the absolute authority of God's Word. So don't be afraid to talk, age appropriately of course, about homosexuality and transgenderism. Let your kids know what the world teaches. Find more teaching that affirms God's Word as our authority when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged and equipped at AnswersRadio.com. Hi, I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. Uh, It had this phone number on it, and, well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger near you. Learn how at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Thank you for spending part of your day with me. I'm very grateful for that. As you know, on Business Buzz, the final segment is usually reserved for peace of mind. Make you feel good going into the end of the day. Maybe maybe the start of dinner. Maybe picking up the children from school. Whatever you're doing. Maybe a soccer practice. Be careful and bring lots of water. So I'm going to read from another one of my favorite books. And this should make you feel a lot better and teach you something at the same time. 
The book is called A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, T-O-L-L-E. No matter what you think of Eckhart Tolle, his, uh, for me, his teachings help. And they, they bring me peace. And that's all I really want. So this chapter is called Recognizing Inner Space. Space between thoughts is probably already arising sporadically in your life, and you may not even know it. A consciousness mesmerized by experiences and conditioned to identify exclusively with form, that is to say object consciousness, finds it at first almost impossible to become aware of space. This ultimately means that you cannot become aware of yourself because you are always aware of something else. You are continuously distracted by form. Even when you seem to be aware of yourself, you have made yourself into an object, a thought form, and so what you are aware of is a thought, not yourself. When you hear of inner space, you may start seeking it, and because you are seeking it as if you were looking for an object or for an experience, you cannot find it. This is the dilemma of all those who are seeking spiritual realization or enlightenment. Hence, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Lo, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. If you are not spending all of your waking life in discontent, worry, anxiety, depression, despair, or consumed by other negative states, if you are able to enjoy simple things like listening to the sound of the rain or the wind, if you can see the beauty of clouds moving across the sky or be alone at times, without feeling lonely or needing the mental stimulus of entertainment, if you find yourself treating a complete stranger with heartfelt kindness without wanting anything from him or her, it means that a space has opened up, no matter how briefly, in the otherwise incessant stream of thinking that is the human mind. When this happens, there is a sense of well-being, of a live peace, even though it may be subtle. The intensity will vary from a perhaps barely noticeable background sense of contentment to what the ancient sages of India called Ananda, the bliss of being. Because you have been conditioned to pay attention only to form, you are probably not aware of it except indirectly. For example, there is a common element in the ability to see beauty, to appreciate simple things, to enjoy your own company, or to relate to other people with loving kindness. This common element is a sense of contentment, peace, and aliveness that is in is the invisible background without which these experiences would not be possible. Whenever there is beauty, kindness, the recognition of the goodness of simple things in your life, look for the background to that experience within yourself. But don't look for it as if you were looking for something. You cannot pin it down and say, now I have it, or grasp it mentally and define it in some way. It is like the cloudless sky. It has no form. It is space, it is stillness, the sweetness of being, and infinitely more than these words, which are only pointers. When you are able to sense it directly within yourself, it deepens. So when you appreciate something simple, a sound, a sight, a touch, when you see beauty, when you feel loving kindness toward another, sense the inner spaciousness that is the source and background to that experience. Many poets and sages throughout the ages have observed that true happiness, I call it the joy of being, is found in simple, seemingly unremarkable things. Most people in their restless search for something significant to happen to them continuously miss the insignificant, which may not be insignificant at all. The philosopher Nietzsche, in a rare moment of deep stillness, wrote, For happiness, how little suffices for happiness. The least thing precisely, the gentlest thing, the lightest thing, a lizard's rustling, a breath, a whisk, an eye glance. Little maketh up the best happiness. Be still. Why is it the least thing that makes up the best happiness? Because true happiness is not caused by the thing or event, although this is how it first appears. The thing or event is so subtle, so unobtrusive, that it takes up only a small part of your consciousness, and the rest is inner space, consciousness itself unobstructed by form. Inner space consciousness and who you are in your essence are one and the same. In other words, the form of little things leaves room for inner space, and it is from inner space, the unconditioned consciousness itself, that true happiness, the joy of being, emanates. To be aware of little quiet things, however, you need to be quiet inside. 
A high degree of alertness is required. Be still. Look. Listen. Be present. Here is another way of finding inner space. Become conscious of being conscious. Say or think I am and add nothing to it. Be aware of the stillness that follows the I am. Sense your presence, the naked, unveiled, unclothed beingness. It is untouched by young or old, rich or poor, good or bad, or any other attributes. It is the spacious womb of all creation, all form. I'm going to continue. A Zen master was walking in silence with one of his disciples along a mountain trail. When they came to an ancient cedar tree, they sat down under it for a simple meal of some rice and vegetables. After the meal, the disciple, a young monk who had not yet found the key to the mystery of Zen, broke the silence by asking the master, Master, how do I enter Zen? He was, of course, inquiring how to enter the state of consciousness, which is Zen. The master remained silent. Almost five minutes passed while the disciple anxiously awaited for an answer. He was about to ask another question when the master suddenly spoke. Do you hear the sound of that mountain stream? The disciple had not been aware of any mountain stream. He had been too busy thinking about the meaning of Zen. Now as he began to listen for the sound, his noisy mind subsided. At first he heard nothing. Then his thinking gave way to heightened alertness and suddenly he did hear the hardly perceptible murmur of a small stream in the far distance. Yes, I can hear it now, he said. The master raised his finger and, with a look in his eyes that in some way was both fierce and gentle, said, Enter Zen from there. The disciple was stunned. It was his first satori, a flash of enlightenment. He knew what Zen was without knowing what it was that he knew. They continued on their journey in silence. The disciple was amazed at the aliveness of the world around him. He experienced everything as if for the first time. Gradually, however, he started thinking again. The alert stillness became covered up again by mental noise, and before long, he had another question. Master, he said, I have been thinking. What would you have said if I hadn't been able to hear the mountain stream? The master stopped, looked at him, raised his finger, and said, Enter Zen from there. The ego asks, how can I make this situation fulfill my needs or how can I get to some other situation that will fulfill my needs? Presence is a state of inner spaciousness. When you are present, you ask, how do I respond to the needs of this situation of this moment? In fact, you don't even need to ask the question. You are still alert, open to what is. You bring a new dimension into the situation, space. Then you look and you listen. Thus, you become one with the situation. When instead of reacting against the situation, you merge with it. The solution arises out of the situation itself. Actually, it is, not, it is not you, the person who is looking and listening, but the alert stillness itself. Then, if action is possible or necessary, you take action, or rather right action happens through you. Right action is action that is appropriate to the whole. When the action is accomplished, the alert spacious stillness remains. There is nobody who raises his arms in a gesture of triumph, shouting a defiant, Yeah, there is no one who says, Look, I did that. All creativity comes out of inner spaciousness. Once the creation has happened and something has come into form, you have to be vigilant so that the notion of me or mine does not arise. If you take credit for what you accomplished, the ego has returned and the spaciousness has become obscured. Most people are only peripherally aware of the world that surrounds them, especially if their surroundings are familiar. The voice in the head absorbs the greater part of their attention. Some people feel more alive when they travel and visit unfamiliar places or foreign countries because at those times sense perception experiencing takes up more of their consciousness than thinking. They become more present. Others remain completely possessed by the voice in the head even then. Their perceptions and experiences are distorted by instant judgments. They haven't really gone anywhere. Only their body is traveling, while they remain where they have always been, in their head. This is most people's reality. As soon as something is perceived, it is named, interpreted, compared with something else, liked, disliked, or called good and bad by the phantom self, the ego. They are imprisoned in thought forms in object consciousness, object consciousness. You do not awaken spiritually until the compulsive and unconscious naming ceases or at least you become aware of it and thus are able to observe it as it happens. 
It is through this constant naming that the ego remains in place as the unobserved mind. Whenever it ceases, and even when you just become aware of it, there is inner space, and you are not possessed by the mind anymore. Choose an object close to you, a pen, a chair, a cup, a plant, and explore it visually. That is to say, look at it with great interest, almost curiosity. Avoid any object with strong personal associations that remind you of the past, such as where you bought it, who gave it to you, and so on. Also avoid anything that has writing on it, such as a book or a bottle. It would stimulate thought. Without straining, relaxed but alert, give your complete attention to the object, every detail of it. If thoughts arise, don't get involved in them. It is not the thoughts you are interested in, but the act of perception itself. Can you take the thinking out of the perceiving? Can you look without the voice in your head commenting, drawing conclusions, comparing, or trying to figure something out? After a couple of minutes or so, let your gaze wander around the room or wherever you are, your alert attention lighting up each thing that it rests upon. Then listen to any sounds that may be present. Listen to them in the same way as you looked at the things around you. Some sounds may be natural, water, winds, birds, while others are man-made. Some may be pleasant, others unpleasant. However, don't differentiate between good and bad. Allow each sound to be as it is without interpretation. Here too, relaxed but alert attention is the key. When you look and look and listen in this way, you may become aware of a subtle and at first perhaps hardly noticeable sense of calm. Some people feel it as a stillness in the background. Others call it peace. When consciousness is no longer totally absorbed by thinking, some of it remains in its formless, unconditioned, original state. This is inner space. Who is the experiencer? What you see and hear, taste, touch, and smell are, of course, sense objects. They are what you experience. But who is the subject, the experiencer? If you now say, for example, well, of course, I, Jane Smith, senior accountant, 45 years old, divorced, mother of two, American, and the subject, the experiencer, you are mistaken. Jane Smith and whatever else becomes identified with the mental concept of Jane Smith are all objects of experience, not the experiencing subject. Every experience has three possible ingredients, sense perceptions, thoughts, or mental images, and emotions. Jane Smith, senior accountant, 45 years old, mother of two, divorced American. These are all thoughts and therefore part of what you experience the moment you think these thoughts. They and whatever else you can say and think about yourself as objects are objects, not the subject. They are experience, not the experiencer. You can add a thousand more definition thoughts of you of who you are, and by doing so will certainly increase the complexity of the experience of yourself as well as your psychiatrist's income. But in this way, you will not end up with the subject, the experiencer who is prior to all experience, but without whom there would be no experience. So who is the experiencer? You are. And who are you? Consciousness. And what is consciousness? This question cannot be answered. The moment you answer it, you have falsified it made it into another object. Consciousness, the traditional word for which is spirit, cannot be known in the normal sense of the word, and seeking it is futile. All knowing is within the realm of duality, subject and object, the knower and the known. The subject, the I, the knower without which nothing could be known, perceived, thought, or felt, must remain forever unknowable. This is because the I has no form. Well, I hope that was peaceful and calming. To be honest, on this hot day, it almost put me to sleep, but I managed to make it till the final bell. Thank you for spending time with me on Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Join me every Tuesday at 3 and some other times for replays. I will talk with you next time. Bye-bye.
KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR. From townhall.com, I'm Ron DeRockstrom. Faced with a growing humanitarian crisis at the border, House Democrats are scrambling to find support for a $4.5 billion aid package. The White House.